This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. God, as Clifford said, we had a f- fantastic uh, weekend last uh, week. It's hard to believe, Clifford, isn't it? It's, it's just all over, isn't it? Just is so, so quick. It just happens so fast. Uh, all right, Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, and Acts chapter 2. I want to pick up again uh, the theme we had before last weekend about the Holy Spirit. Uh, And I want to do an entirely different message tonight that's not related at all to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Tonight I want to speak on a message that I believe is, for me anyway, is one of the most beautiful, the most poignant uh, stories in the whole of the Old Testament. It's a story of redemption, of restoration, it's a story of the goodness of God and his love for us. And it's just one of those stories that I, I like to revisit in my readings. And I've been doing that again this week, so we'll share that tonight. But this morning, uh, in Matthew chapter 3, and uh, reading from verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And of course... uh, Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them uh, utterance. Now, throughout Scripture, as most of you would know, of course, the Holy Spirit is portrayed in various ways as wind, as breath, as oil, as water, as wine, etc., etc. And we see here in Matthew 3 and Acts 2 another way in which the Holy Spirit is depicted as of fire. Now, fire is an interesting metaphor that the writer uses to describe the properties and the actions and the characteristics of the workings of the Holy Spirit. Now, we tend to think in fire in terms of Moses going up Mount Sinai and the whole mountain was burning with fire. Or Moses at the burning bush and how the bush was on fire and yet it was not consumed. Or we tend to think in instances, for instance, of Elijah up in Mount Carmel fighting against the prophets of Baal and he calls fire down from heaven. So we tend to think of fire and God. We connect those two with stories such as that. 
But here, the John the Baptist is saying that when Christ would come, he would baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we see in the day of Pentecost that there was uh, symbols of fire upon each of their heads. And so fire is one of the characteristics of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, for a little while, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about fire in relation to the Holy Spirit. First of all, fire absolutely consumes. And Hebrews 12.29 and Deuteronomy 4.24, our God is a consuming fire. In Isaiah 4 and 4, it talks about a spirit of burning. Now, whenever the children of Israel crossed the Jordan, the first city they came to was Jericho. That was the first city they had to conquer. And God gave Joshua strict instructions that whenever that city was conquered, that the city was to be burned with fire. It was to be utterly consumed with fire. The enemy's stronghold had to be burned with fire. In Acts 19, Paul is having a great revival in Ephesus. Many, many people are coming to Christ. But there was a group who practiced magic and this was a long-standing thing they were had because they had many, many, many books. And whenever they became believers in Christ, the first thing they did was they had a great bonfire of all of their books and all of their magic rituals and all of their whatever they did, all the paraphernalia. They had a great bonfire, and it says there was 50,000 pieces of silver. That's what it was worth. So you can imagine it was a lot of books. And the first thing they did was, was they got them consumed with fire, stating that their old life, things in the old life had been burned. It was gone. It was ashes. It was over. And so we need the Holy Spirit to burn in our lives anything that lingers of the old life once we become believers. This, the straw of selfishness or the stubble of rebellion or the hay of pride or the dead wood of worldly endeavors or the roots of bitterness, anything that resembles the old life that we had needs to be burned and the Holy Spirit wants to consume it right out of our lives. And so the Holy Spirit, even though he's depicted often as water and oil and a dove, there's a gentleness about those things. But when you think of fire, fire is a dangerous thing. It burns. It consumes. And the Holy Spirit wants to be fire in our lives. Fire not just only consumes, but fire purifies. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah the prophet here, in the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah was one of the great kings of Judah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. And with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. 
And I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, Isaiah here is, is losing this king. He's lost this king, a great king. And he's greatly concerned about the state of the nation. And in fact, he has woes to pronounce upon the state of the nation. But before he pronounces woes upon the state of the nation, the first thing he does is a woe upon himself. When he stands there in the presence and in the glory of the mighty God with these seraphims, these burning creatures, because that's what seraphim means, he feels undone. He feels he's a man of unclean lips. Uh, the lips and the heart are connected in the Bible. So they are. And, and he feels that very, very deeply. Uh, and he's crying, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. And so whenever he saw the king in his glory and he felt dirty in the presence of the holy king, the Lord of glory, and he felt undone, Remember Peter one time said, depart from me, Lord, because I'm unclean. And, and, and this is the same with Isaiah. But notice here the Lord cleanses him with what? With a coal from off the altar. This is symbolic. Touching his lips and implication is touching his heart and cleansing him. And what happens immediately after that? Suddenly, I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. And then he had to go on and prophesy. And so his lips needed to be touched. There needed to be a burning, a cleansing, a purifying. There's lips that needs purifying. Lying lips... Proverbs 6, 17, God hates a lying tongue, the Bible says. God hates a lying tongue. In Acts chapter 5, here is a dramatic incident right back at the start of the early church in chapter 5 of Acts, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it and brought, it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, if we had read just a few verses before that in the previous chapter, you would find that there was a tremendous thing happening in Jerusalem. Thousands and thousands of people were coming to Christ. And 
Obviously, for them to take this step to come to Christ, coming out of Judaism into Christ, was a big, big step because Jesus was the despised Nazarene. And the early church, very often by the religious authority, was absolutely despised. And so the apostles, uh, obviously, at some point, must have indicated that if people could help the early church and give. Uh, and so people started just spontaneously and voluntarily selling homes and selling lands and bringing their money and laying at the apostles' feet for them to distribute, which they did. So everybody had something. There was some kind of equality among them so that nobody was going to be without. And so that was a big thing that was happening. And this couple wanted to get in on the act and so they had a, a parcel of land and they sold it. Now, if they, they were quite entitled to sell their land and if they had sold their land and kept all of it, that would have been fine. Nobody was making them do anything. This was all voluntary. But if they had a sold it and kept it, that would have been fine. If they had a sold it and said to Peter, look, Peter, we have sold our land. We're going to give half of it to the church, but we're going to keep the other half. That would have been fine, but they didn't do that. They sold all of the land, and they implied to Peter that they had given all of it for the church, but actually they hadn't. So they were lying. This was a bald-faced lie. They didn't have to do this. Nobody was compelling them to do it. But they wanted to give the impression that they were really super spiritual people and that they too were making a great sacrifice when all of the time they were keeping back part of it and not saying, which was a big, big lie. And so what happens? He sold a possession. He kept part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own in your own control? So why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God." Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Now this was not normal, even in the early church. This is a little bit unusual. But remember the early church was just beginning, so God was going to set a standard here. He did not want lies in his house or in his church. If we had read the previous chapter, we'd have seen that there was great power had come into the church. And there was great grace had come into the church. And then when you come into chapter 5, and there's great fear has now come into the church. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? In other words, you're trying to see what you can get away with. 
It's always a dangerous thing for a professing believer to try to see how much they can get away with, with God. And that's what they were doing. Did you sell the land for so much? Yes, for so much, Peter said. How is it you have agreed to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out, burying her with her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Imagine if the church was like this today. I don't think there's a great fear in the church today. I don't think that many Christians feel they can live whatever way they like. Or they can get away with it whatever they like because there's great grace in the church. Well, the early church found out that that wasn't just quite right. And so great fear came upon them. And I'm sure this happened in our day. I'm sure every single one of us would be searching our hearts to make sure that we were living right. Lying lips. Proud lips. Remember Luke 18, the story of the, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican? And Jesus was making a point to these self-righteous religious leaders whose religion was an outward show, a profession, but not really a possession in their heart. And he told the parable how the Pharisee and the public went into the temple to pray and how the Pharisee stood afar off by himself and how he prayed. And you can be sure he prayed out loud because they, Jesus said they loved to play in the market, pray in the marketplace where everybody can hear them. And when they fasted, they loved to look miserable so that everybody could see them. So it was an outward show. And you can be sure he prayed out loud, and he was praying that everybody in the temple precinct could hear him. I thank God I am not as other men. <laughs> what an arrogant, boastful statement to make. And he talked about how he, he tithed and how he fasted twice in the week. Jews were only ever in the Old Testament ever asked to fast on the Day of Atonement. But you see, he was a self-righteous, showy Pharisee. I fast twice in the week. I, I tithe of everything, even the very herbs of my garden, I tithe. I'm not like that publican over there, that sinner over there. And Jesus says, but the publican, the tax collector, the hated tax collector, he couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast. He was thinking about his heart. And he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm nothing. I'm a filthy, dirty, cheating sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you what, he will go home justified more than the other one. Proud lips. 
boastful lips. The Apostle Paul, he could have been very, very boastful. If you read 2 Corinthians 6, verses 3 to 10, and see some of the stuff that he went through for the sake of the gospel, he could have boasted a lot. He could have boasted a lot of who he was before he became a believer. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin. His parents, <laughs> I mean, they were full-blooded Jews and Pharisees. I mean, he was brought up in it. Sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the, the great rabbi teacher. I mean, he was right up there. And he says, all of that, when I came to Christ, all of it meant nothing. I counted that as nothing that I might win Christ. He could have boasted he could have boasted about his education, about his intellect, about his theology. He could have boasted about how, as a real uh, zealous Pharisee, how he went out and imprisoned Christians and, and, and stood and saw them stoned to death. But he said, no. No, no. No. You read Philippians 3. I count all that as nothing. As nothing. Everything that man, everything that his peers, everything that his acquaintances would have held up as something great, he said, it's as nothing to me that I may win Christ. There's a lot of boastful bragging goes on today in the body of Christ. The fastest growing church, the biggest church in the state, the biggest Sunday school. It's just constant. Now, boastful lips, hasty lips. Proverbs 29 and 20. See a man hasty in his words, there is more hope of a fool than of him. What is it people say before you open your mouth? Put your brain in gear. Peter was hasty, wasn't he? He had hasty lips. He just liked just to say whatever he thought. Didn't matter if it was right or wrong or who it hurt or who it offended. Everybody had a right to his opinion. I heard one man say, he says, if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. <laughs> Peter was a bit like that, wasn't he? Half times he's never even asked the question, but he always gave an answer. Because he always thought he had the answer. But he was very hasty with his lips. You remember the night he looked at all those disciples and he says, Lord, if they all forsake you, I won't. I will even die for you. Hasty lips. He didn't know that before daylight he would be dying the Lord three times. Within hours of saying that, he would feel miserably. He would let the Lord down in the greatest way possible. But he was hasty with his lips. Sometimes we need to think a little bit before we say 
unclean lips and angry lips, Colossians 3.8. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Uh, by the way, he's writing this to Christians. He's writing this to the church at Colossae. He's not writing this to people out in the world out there. He's not professing. He's writing this to professing believers. I read that again in that light. <coughs> but now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. In other words, that's not for us. If we are professing believers, none of that stuff should be coming out of our mouth. It's not for us. And if it does, we need to quickly say sorry and repent of it and ask God to forgive us. Hasty lips, angry lips, proud lips, boastful lips. Isaiah 6, the seraphim took a coal from the altar and touched his lips. Here was the great prophet, the holy man, who felt he was a man of unclean lips when he saw the presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Fire softens. Psalm 68 and 2, As Max welts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. The fire of the Holy Spirit can melt the hardest of hearts. Saul of Tarsus had a hard heart it was full of hatred and bitterness and anger against the fledgling church. The sect of the Nazarenes. This was a threat to him and to the religious establishment of that day. And he knew that. And he went out on a campaign to stamp it out, to imprison them, to kill them, thinking he was doing God a favor. So here's a man with a terrible hardness of heart. And yet, in spite of that, the Holy Spirit began to prick him. And when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, you remember what he said? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. The Spirit of God was pricking his conscience in spite of the, his drive to destroy, but way down in the depths of that hard heart, the Holy Spirit was pricking him. And his heart was beginning to open and beginning to melt to the point where he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he bowed down and he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What a dramatic change. The Lord can melt the hardest of hearts. The man who wrote Amazing Grace had a hard black heart. 
a slave trader, a blasphemer. And yet the Holy Spirit melted that hard heart. And he became a great preacher and a great songwriter. And we sing his songs today. We need to pray for the Holy Spirit to keep our hearts soft, to keep our hearts from getting hard. Sclerosis of the heart is the most dangerous thing. Sclerosis of the spiritual heart. You know, when stuff happens to you, even as a believer, there's a danger that can get in on you and you can become cynical. Uh, and you can become hardened. And the trouble with that is, if you allow that to continue, and then it becomes bitter and angry. And if you allow that to continue, then you'll have no softness of hearts. And when there's no softness of hearts, then there's no compassion. And there's no forgiveness. And there's no sensitivity. And there's no willingness then to help the needy. Because we're so angry and hard at what's happened to us. And the Holy Spirit wants to soften our hearts, to make our hearts sensitive and compassionate and caring about others. But then, not only does fire soften, but fire hardens. Ah, the delicate porcelain clay, when it's put into the kiln and it's left there, it hardens. It strengthens. It becomes set. It becomes established. Because the fire does that to it. I was watching a program recently how they were making these special swords. I think they were samurai swords. And how that they put that steel into the fire until it was white hot. And then they brought it out of the fire and they plunged it into cold water. And then they took it out of the cold water and put it back into that fire until it was white hot again. And then they took it out and plunged it into cold water, back and forward, back and forward, into the cold, into the fire, into the cold, into the fire. And something they said happens when you do that with steel, it changes the molecular structure. And it becomes super hard, super strong above what it would normally be. So they can sharpen the edge to it's like a razor. And it's tough and it's hard to break. And we need the Holy Spirit to harden us, to give us a backbone of steel, to give us spiritual strength. Listen, we are facing days. We're coming into days. And we heard about it from Paul last week. We're coming into days. We can see it happening where Christians are going to have to stand up and be counted. And we're going to need courage and guts. And the Holy Spirit can give us that courage and that strength to do it. He's the one who can do that. He's the one on earth who lives in us, who can give us the power that we need to go through this life the way it is. He can give us that spiritual strength that we need. Fire spreads, doesn't it? Fire is hard to contain. It can spread very, very rapidly. In fact, 
the Apostle James in his little book, he said that just a little spark can set ablaze a whole forest. A couple of years ago when I was with Sally, we were over at Sally's sister in Australia, and her husband took me out and he drove me way out, miles out into the bush, and we up to an elevated spot, and he says, I want you to look, look out over there, and it's as far as I could see. It was flat as far as I could see. Not a tree in sight. And it was black. I said, look, it's horrible looking. He says, that's because it was burned. He says, there was such a blaze that they just had to let it burn. It was just uncontrollable for acres and thousands of acres. As far as you could see, it was burned. Now he says, that will come back again. If you come back this time next year, you'll see, in fact, there's little shoots of green growth that are starting to happen. But he says, when you come back, he says, that'll grow back again. But he says, that was devastated. And he says, that's the thing that you have to watch living in Australia, particularly in droughts. If you live near forests, he says, your house could get burned to a crisp, to ashes in no time at all if they can't contain it. On the day of Pentecost, when the fire of the Holy Spirit fell, 3,000 people got saved in one sermon. Then 5,000 got saved. And then it went from Jerusalem. It was all filled with a doctrine, the Bible says. The whole of Jerusalem was buzzing about Christ. And then it went from that into Judea and then into Samaria and then into Antioch with the great missionary uh, endeavors all to Asia Minor and to all places began to happen. And then you read in Revelation, you see the church at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Theatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea and all over and then into Philippi which into Europe and now today that blaze is still going on and it's happening in China and it's happening in Korea and India and Africa and Indonesia and Russia and South America and the Middle East and the Far East and it's just continuing. The Holy Spirit is at work all over the world. You wouldn't think it if you only lived in Britain or Europe. But all over the world, the church is exploding in different nations. They say that even in Iran, in that Muslim stronghold, they said that the church is rapidly growing in spite of it all. Just the way it did in China. The more they tried to stamp it out, the stronger it became. And that's what happens because the Holy Spirit spreads, the fire spreads. Sometimes it spreads slowly, sometimes it spreads quickly, sometimes it seems it's just a smoldering little flame, a flickering flame, and then suddenly the wind of God comes and that flame becomes a fire. In the 1800s, 100,000 people got saved in Northern Ireland in one year. A tenth of the population. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if a tenth of Moira got saved in one year through the combined efforts of all of the churches? Wouldn't we be rejoicing? Wouldn't our churches be full to overflowing? Can you imagine if a tenth of the whole of Northern Ireland in one year got saved? A hundred thousand in Wales, three hundred thousand in Scotland, half a million in England. The fires began to spread all over the nations.
and it's still going strong today. Times of revival has come to different peoples and different nations at different times, all during the 2,000 years of church history. And boy, we need that again, don't we? Particularly in the West. Fire fuses. Those oxyacetylene torches fuses those metals together till they're almost unbreakable. It fuses. 120 men and women in the upper room in the day of Pentecost, all together with one accord, in one place, with one purpose, and the Holy Spirit comes and fuses them all together. And from that little gathering, not much bigger than we have here today, from that, suddenly, within days and weeks and months, the whole city is buzzing because the fire had spread. And they were fused together with one purpose. If the church ever gets into full unity, there's no telling what might happen. You know, that unity applies the other way too in the Tower of Babel, whenever they were building that tower. And God says, now nothing shall be withheld from them for what they purpose to do. Why? Because they were in unity. So he went down and confused their tongues so they couldn't work together in unity. But he says, nothing be withheld from them that they imagined to do because they were in unity. If the church was in unity, nothing could hold us back. Fire tests and it proves. Precious metal like gold is put into the fire and it's purified. And the dross, the impurities, come to the surface, and they're scraped away, and then it's heated again, and then more comes, and it's scraped away. And the same whenever the goldsmith can see his face in the gold, that's when it's pure. And the Holy Spirit wants to take the dross out of our lives. All the stuff, all the stuff that is not right and not good so that Christ can see his face in us. So that his reflection is in our lives. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're just about through in a moment. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is seen in the book of Revelation 
standing in the midst of the seven churches, the seven golden candlesticks, and his eyes are a blaze of fire. His eyes are fiery, and he's looking into his church, and he's inspecting, and he's correcting, and he's speaking to the church. What a scary image of Christ with eyes that are blazing with fire looking into his church. 2 Corinthians 5 and 10 tells us that one day every believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and our works from the day we get saved will be tried by fire. To see whether they're hay, wood, or stubble that will be burned up or whether there be precious stones and silver and gold that will remain. The Holy Spirit tests and proves. He comes as fire. Fire can be put out, can't it? 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. In our individual lives, we can so easily quench the Spirit we can do things that offend him, that vex him, that grieve him, the Bible says. Because we've said in this study, he is a person. God, the Holy Spirit, a personality, has feelings, can sense. But fire, thank God, can be kept burning. We'll finish with this. Romans 12, 11, Be fervent in spirit. One translation puts it this way. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. That's good, isn't it? Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Weymouth translates this, have your spirits aglow. Goodspeed said, be on fire with the Spirit. The Revived Standard Version states it, be aglow with the Spirit. So from time to time, we have to enter just the ministry of the poker. <laughs> Our dear old friend who's in the glory, Alec Schofield, used to talk about the ministry of the poker. I says, Alec, what do you mean? He says, well, when the fire's going out, you have to stick the poker in, don't you, and give it a good shake up. And you have to get all those old dead ashes out. And then you have to start adding fuel to the fire. But when you stick the poker in, it starts to blaze again, doesn't it? It lets the air and the oxygen in, and it starts to blaze again. Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1 and 6, stir up the gift of God which is in you. Another translation says, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. So let's keep adding fuel to the fire. Singing to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's the way to do it. That's one of the ways. Worshipping, praying, reading the Word, coming to the house of God, all of these things enables us to keep the fire burning for God. Amen? I know it's almost a cliche today, but very often it's been used. The story, of course, of the 
a young man who had been missing church so much. And the pastor went to visit him. And he says, Pastor, I'm cold. My heart is cold. I, I, you know, I, I'm just not what I was. I'm not on fire anymore. And so the pastor very wisely got the tongs and he took a coal from out of the fire and he set it on the hearth. He didn't say a word. He just set it there. And after a few minutes, he said to the young man, he says, look at that coal on the hearth. And it had turned black. It was cooling down. He says, now watch. And he put it back into the fire again. And it began to glow again. And he says, you separate it yourself from the house of God, from the people of God, from the things of God. It's inevitable that you'll kill down. But when you're back in again, and the Spirit begins to move in your heart again, and the flame begins to come again, the Holy Spirit is as fire to our hearts. He keeps us glowing. And if you've lost your glow, Christian, ask the Holy Spirit, stir up the gift of God which is in you, and ask the Holy Spirit to get your glow back. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk. Thank you.